Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is the award-winning Times journalist and best-selling author, Melanie Reed. In a 2010 riding accident, Melanie broke both her neck and back, leaving her paralyzed. Since then, she's written about her attempts to come to terms with her disability in her weekly spinal column for The Times. Her best-selling memoir, The World I Fell Out Of, won the Saltar Scottish Nonfiction Book of the Year for its heart-wrenching and humorous account of her life-changing accident. Outside of her writer's room, Melanie is the patron of numerous charities, including Spinal Research, the Association for Continence Advice, the Colostomy Association, and Friends at the End, all matters she never expected to be expert in. She is renowned for her dry humor and authenticity, and her tip to listeners is this, do a lot of dancing. Melanie, welcome to Changemakers. Let's let's start with the tip um, and the message to live life to the fullest. Hello, Michael. Well, um, it's only when you can't do it anymore that you realize how good it is. And the ability to just boogie around the kitchen when you're, you know, preparing your bolognese sauce or your pesto, um, you should do it because uh, when you can't, when your legs and your torso doesn't work anymore and you just think, I want to express myself and I can't do it with my body anymore. So it's the joy of movement, which dancing is. Everything from, uh, you know, from from boogieing around as a teenager, right through to old people at tea dances. Um, there's something very special about moving to music. It's it's the one thing you know now that I can't watch. If I'm at a social gathering, I don't go to a lot. It's not now. Nobody nobody's going to them, but. If I'm at a social gathering and the dancing starts, I just try and slip away because it hurts too much. That that expression of, of movement through through the lyricism of, of just music and, and I, I guess it's sexuality too. It's everything, isn't it? It's 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 joy. And, and I really do think that the sort of you know, the lesson that I've taken out of reading so much about you is that that kind of get out there and live message is is so at the heart of your writing and the advice pieces. But I suppose a lot of people sit there and thinking, but what do I do? I don't know. I don't know. What are the steps I should take in terms of how to live the good life? Because, I mean, I suppose if if regret is the moment that we do learn our lessons, can, can you learn those lessons earlier, do you think, in terms of sort of taking that control, of having that joy, of living that life to the full? I, I suppose through the prism of me, the joy of life and living was movement. My, my sort of social network was a healthy one. And for me, the joy was in, exercise, uh, in climbing hills, in nature, in seeing a horizon and the joy of getting you know, hot and sweaty and, and, and hearing your heart rate, uh, race and, and I used to run 10Ks and pushing myself. I did used to physically push myself and just, just having limbs that worked and okay, I took it for granted. Um, I wish that people whose bodies still worked, uh, do work now, that, that, that they would go out and push their bodies a bit. And I know it's hard, but you know, even, even running up and down the street, 
such a precious thing when you can't do it anymore. And I, I would urge people to appreciate a working body. The sad thing is, it's like uh, youth is wasted on the young and working bodies are wasted on the healthy. And it's only when you become disabled when you get old that you realize the joy of movement so much. I read that in a previous interview that your goals prior to your accident were to be a great dressage rider and to speak fluent French. Um, and you commented that I blew the first and have no excuses for the second. So, comment uh, savoir, Melanie, uh, have, you, have you been using your time? I mean, what, 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 what have you done differently since, since the accident? I mean, is, is, is French one of, the, one of the triumphs? How's my French? <laughs> no, I'm not going to start trying it now. Um, no, I, I, you know, I've done nothing like that. I, I'm, too, I'm too busy meeting deadlines. Uh, I, it continues to be the goal. But I think what you did find was, was the power of prose. I mean, talk about finding your voice. I mean, people will often call out Spinal Column or the world I fell out of in terms of an example of the power of writing. Um, talk to us about your accident and, and what came next in terms of finding your voice. Well, I, I'd always had a voice as, as a professional journalist, but I think what happened in the hours after my accident was that uh, I found myself in the most extraordinary circumstances, ones that, you know, hopefully most people don't find themselves in, you know, going through a recess and, and in this MRI scanner with this, the, the, the wall of the scanner, you know, a few centimetres from my nose and this overriding feeling of claustrophobia. And I remember this, this voice in my head saying, who knew? Who knew it was like this? I've got to write about this. Mm. I, want to, I want to tell this story. This is, this, is, this is weirdly exciting and strange. And that was the beginning of my, my sort of job somehow as a, as a war correspondent from the front line of my own body. And mm. I, I just... I started telling that story, reporting on myself. I interviewed um, um, Terry Waite, who is the second interview this week, and he was saying that when he was incarcerated in Beirut, was that um, he started writing books in his mind, if you like, and actually there was a there was an element of um, first of all, you know, obviously it gave him solace, but he also felt it gave him understanding, and and actually since. Since then, he's become a prolific writer and that he finds that he learns so much about himself in the process of writing. Is, is, that, is that something that you would identify with, Melanie, in terms of um, your work since? Totally, because writing does many things, but one of the, the big things is it, it helps you make sense of what's happening. By expressing stuff, you can work it through in your own head and you can realize, uh, you can sort of start to see strands of, of, of a future and a path and a, just just a form to everything and uh, how, how, how the whole thing is happening around you and that you are actually still alive and you can still place yourself in it by writing about it. Mm. And... It also becomes extraordinary therapy, uh, that ability to express yourself. 
because you can articulate all the grief and the weirdness and the shock that would otherwise be just bottled up inside you. I mean, Michael, I get an awful lot of letters from, from readers uh, expressing their their problems and their you know horrible things that happen to them, especially spinal injuries and stuff. And in many cases, I'm not able to do very much for them. In some cases, I can do absolutely nothing other than write a sympathetic note back. But I take I take a kind of comfort from the fact that I know that by writing all that stuff down, it will have helped them enormously. Mm. But I suppose this is also part of the transition from the reporter to the columnist, um, which is that, you know, you are actually standing the corner of people that are going through things. There is a, a message here about how to live a life, which is far far more above and beyond reporting the great events of the day. It's, I guess it's about, uh, you know, sort of sharing ideas about lives and how to lead them. Writing was my life raft and I, I, I jumped onto it. Oh, I jumped, couldn't jump, but I, I, I dragged myself onto it. And through it, I made sense of my, made sense of my circumstances and I, was able to communicate to people out there what I was going through. Mm. And that power of communication um, is enormous. Now, I, I grew up, my, my generation of journalists were taught never to use the I word. The first person was, was, oh, the biggest sin in the world. You never put yourself in the story. And I didn't like writing first-person pieces. And suddenly I found myself, I was, <laughs> I couldn't get away from the I word. And um, I've been rather trapped in it since. And and I still, it still, you know, it still doesn't sit easy. I would rather be more anonymous. I'd rather be more back office. But I suppose, you mean, the, the I in your story is, is so important because, you know, as you've said it before, is that, when you lose your body, you have so much to get your head around. You, you said a complete change of identity, less power. It's it's huge. And I, I think you, you've got to put yourself at the heart of that story to be able to tell it, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it was, it was, the authenticity of it was that it was me it was happening to. And I was, it was the first you know, an eyewitness account. It was that war correspondence account of the trenches. Mm. Um, and I, I, you couldn't bail that. You just had to say it the way it was. Now, your memoir, The World I Fell Out Of, um, it's being described as both a plea for able-bodied people to be aware of what they have, but also an urge for disabled women um, and the future of their lives. What was the message that, you were trying to give um, to people with disability? I wanted to... <laughs> my, my aim was to try and to show them that life is very capable of still being good, that, you know, it seems everything seems lost and awful. But you can find a path out of things. You can learn to be positive 
about stuff, you can learn to accept stuff. You can't do it quickly. You have to just let the days pass and learn about where things could go. I think where women are concerned, it's particularly hard because being a disabled woman makes you very, very invisible, very, very, very harsh indeed because you lose your femininity, you lose your allure, you lose everything that makes you a woman. Uh, you can't wear clothes anymore because you just, whatever you wear, you wear a wheelchair. Mm. And there is, uh, it's hard for men too. I don't mean, I don't mean to be sort of to score any kind of feminist points here, but I think women in wheelchairs get patronized and ignored in a way that doesn't happen quite so much to men in wheelchairs. You know, you hear, you hear harrowing stories of, of pretty girls who have things said to them like, oh, it's such a shame you're in a chair, you know, no one will want to kiss you now. You're so, you're so pretty, it's such a shame you're in a chair. Mm. Uh, do, do you think, is that changing at all? I mean, you know, a lot of people will point to you and to other people who are activists um, and attempting to create a societal change in terms of relationship um, with disability. And are, are we still, where are we in that, in that journey, do you think, in, in terms of, um, you know, the effects of things like the Paralympic Games and, and other sorts of um, ways of building consciousness about, about people and disability? Well, uh, I'm kind of old school. I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. Things are changing, but I think I represent um, the kind of an older generation view of disability, and especially because I was struck down in middle age, derailed in middle age. And, you know, the whole uh, society regards still institutionally society regards disability as a bit of a deviance you know you're expected to be a good patient you're expected to get well because that's what the welfare system would like you to do you you we we as a society we would like people not to, not to be claiming um, disability benefit we'd like you to be healthy there is that kind of unspoken moral pressure um, we'd like you to, to, to get well and then we don't have to worry about you and pay for you. And I think part of the kind of political tension and, and grief around the whole welfare system is caused by that. And there is a new school of thinking, you know, with young disabled people who have brought identity politics to the whole thing. And they are proud to be disabled. They are their wheelchairs. They are their disability. They own it. They're proud of it. They don't want to be like like uh, healthy people anymore. Or they, they have no, you know, they, to them that's an insult. Now, I can't understand that. I I can't go there. Do you admire that? Because, I mean, I interviewed um, a disability campaigner, Caroline Casey, and she campaigns for the visually impaired. And she was, you know... Exactly as you have said, defined by, empowered by. There was a there was a power and a spirit that 
I mean, I, I was blown away by in terms of just the the sheer energy that 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 it gave to her in in terms of the life that she's leading. If you could Caroline, you would be priceless. You know, you would you would you would you would become one of the richest people in the world. She is she is an extraordinary woman, um, and she's utterly fearless, and she's out there. Um, she owns her disability, um, and I don't know. I, I haven't had an in-depth conversation with her about her sight, but I don't know whether she would she would prefer to be the way she is or prefer to be fully able, fully sighted. But it's uh, there is there certainly is. She is representative of a very new, bold, reclaim the night movement. Um, and I, I admire them so much. I admire their energy and their strength. I'm still a bit stuck in the rut of mourning the person I was. Mm. Uh, I Maybe it's because it's happened to me later in life, but a lot of my energy still is, 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 in, is in the bereavement from the person I lost. Uh, so it, it, and I think that, I mean, that comes out in a lot of your writing, which is that on the one hand, it is quite clear that there is, you know, there is that huge sort of part of this, which is the person that was. But then there is also, there is also a, a light and a humour and a style, which is such an extraordinary combination of, you know, loss and hopefulness in the in in your writing style. Which, I mean, I mean, so much so that I know that that some. Some readers can can often get quite cross with you about um, does that does that sort of become flippant? But humour is part of your superpower, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. That's my uh, it's my Spider Man superpower because uh, without humour, you couldn't survive. If you when you break your neck, it is so black and so awful that um, if you don't see the funny side of it, then you don't go on. Uh, you know, you have to deal with every bodily fluid um, in the world. And, you know, if laughter is the only therapy, you have to make a joke out of stuff. And I I am flippant about stuff sometimes because it is it's another survival mechanism. Uh, you, I mean, for instance, look, I, there's one... There's one that sticks in my mind, and that was the Christmas party at the, the spinal unit. And they had they brought in a Glasgow, a Glasgow tribute band, and they, they were a tribute band to the Kings of Leon. And the Kings of Leon, um, their greatest hit is a song called Your Sex is on Fire. And so in the spinal unit, there were about 25 of us sitting, and we're wearing, we're all totally paralyzed, we're doubly incontinent, we're wearing, you know, we're wearing great, great uh, collars and body braces and we've got you know urine bags hanging out the bottom of our, our tracksuit bottoms and we're in bed some of us were even in beds and some of us couldn't even clap and we're sitting in this circle and we're singing along chanting your sex is on fire you know michael if if these things if you can't see the humor in these things then you 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 know you can't live and and this is the story of living and finding finding your way. Tell, tell us about the pandemic in terms of 
both your personal experience of it and, and, and what you've observed of it in terms of its effects on others? I've been practicing for this pandemic for, for what, nine years, because I've always lived a bit of, been living a bit of, as a hermit. Uh, I, I rather hide myself away. I don't, you know, going out is tough, as it is for a lot of disabled people. And so when it came, I, I was quite, you know, naturally ready for it. It didn't, to be honest, it didn't change my life a lot. Mm. I spent a lot of energy worrying about people I love whose lives have been impacted by it. But other than that, no, I just hide myself away and I carried on watching, watching from my little eerie in the hills. But I think you have also um, provided a, a perspective um, where your own experience is, is really important. I mean, on, on anti-maskers, um, you wrote that when you're not vulnerable, it's almost impossible to imagine what it feels like. I know this. I was there once. And I know if anti-maskers ever find themselves helpless at the mercy of nasty things, they'll soon change their view. Do you Do you feel that... That, that that is a message that is becoming better understood as you observe, I guess, society's response to this? Or or do you think you have to really face trouble before you wake up to it? Some people who are, you know, either very stubborn or neurodiverse, whatever, they may never accept it. But there are a lot of people who who need to experience awful stuff before it becomes evident to them that they need to do they, they need to go with science um, and you know my 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 frustration is with people who 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 I, it's, it's very selfish i know they can't help it some of these people they're just they're wired differently but i think there is there's great harm being done by people who are stubbornly vocal about it, um, who are, are obsessed with, with this suggestion that the vaccine carries threats. And I believe in this sort of simple common good. And I, when you're scared, when you are vulnerable, and you suddenly understand that you don't want to die, you don't want to lose everything, and that that fear and that vulnerability is immense. Mm. Do, do you think that um, that message about, that I guess is associated with that, get out there and live, um, does that, do you, do you think the pandemic brings that into sharper focus for, for more people? Or do you, do you feel that a lot of people are sat there thinking, I, I don't know what I should do next? A good life is about living in the now. It's, it's about appreciating the people that love you. And it's about using the nice stuff around you. Don't keep stuff for best. Live it now. Because if you look too far in the future, it can be toxic. So just enjoy now. Live in the moment. Um, be happy with, with the people that be happy that people love you. That's a huge thing. 
um, that you inspire love in somebody and, and you can talk to people, you can see people, okay, you maybe can't hug them yet. You can make plans and just you can still dance within your house. Uh, you can go out for walks. But hang on to the fact that you have a lovely body because it works mm. and you have your health. And and your your quote for life. I mean, my last question to you. Um, I was um, I was taken that it it, it comes from um, John Cleese and um, his movie Clockwise and his character Brian Stimson. For those for those that will remember that movie, it was a great movie. Just 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 share the quote, Melanie, that that um, that you'd have our listeners um, remember. It's the hope I can't stand. <laughs> it's the what? hope I can't stand because it's, <laughs> and it's just wonderfully cynical. And uh, it's because I I wanted to believe that I would walk again, and it's tortured me ever since. But uh, I keep going, mm. <laughs> and I can laugh at myself about it. Well, so to give the fullest version of it, he says it's not the despair. I can take the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. Um, and I suppose, but but to finish on a thought for the future, I, I, I guess in terms of you know future goals and um, things that you're thinking about, where, where where does the story go from here for you? Do you think I, I, is, is are there more books? Are there? I mean, the column will continue. Where where where? What can we expect next from Melanie? Do you think? I would love to step back from uh, confessional prose. I would, at some point, I would, I think I should graciously retire from the column. I feel that I've laid myself out there for a long time. I would like to devote the time and I have, time and health that I have left, I'd like to devote to my family, to my husband, who's getting older. And uh i would i toy with the idea of writing books but um journalism keeps me busy i perhaps i mean everybody has this arrogance about that there's there's, there's there's another book in me and maybe there will be maybe i'll find time at some point to write it but i keep myself Work, work is my biggest therapy. I keep myself hectic and busy and frantic because it stops me thinking too much about about my plight. Mm. And there may come a time when when the column isn't there anymore and I can turn those energies into writing something of a different kind. Maybe I'll learn French. Like we can stand the hope for that, Melanie. Thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. <laughs> <laughs>